there was this odd, unknown taste in her mouth. It turned out to be the mixture of blood and dirt. She'd been thrown to the ground again and again. Her face rubbed into the dirt. And as she was trying to gather her senses and figure out what was happening to her, she was experiencing all of these experiences at once, pain and anguish and fear and, and noise, just the cacophonous sound of the uproar of a crowd. And as she came to her senses and began to really grapple with what was happening, she remembered that uh, she's now covered in dust. And that's the only thing she's covered with. She was actually dragged from her own bedroom by total strangers who burst into her house. She was thrown down into the dirt and then dragged through the street. And as they dragged her and as they kicked her and prodded her and pushed her along, she began to be aware of the fact that the, the, the little group, the little band of men who had broken into her house and taken her was growing. And it was now turning into a very large group. And, and as the noise rose and the people began to stick their heads out the windows to see what was happening, more and more were joining her in the street. And as she saw this crowd coming, she thought, well, maybe they are coming to rescue me, but they were not coming to rescue. They were coming to join. And as she looked, she noticed that so many of these men who were abusing her were wearing the white robes of a priest. And she was in shock and dismayed. And she couldn't understand what was going on. She literally lay naked, covered in dust. And she looked up and realized that they had stopped pushing her because now she was where they were taking her. She was in the temple courtyard. She was in the, the holiest place on earth in the unholiest moments of her life. And she was exposed. Literally, physically, and yet also emotionally and spiritually. Her, her very sin was exposed her secret was out, and they were making a mockery of her. And it wasn't lost on her that in this holy place, there was such a contrast to this unholy woman that she had become. And she felt guilty. And she had felt guilty about it from the start. This was not a new feeling of guilt. She had felt guilty about it from the start. She knew when she got into it that it was wrong. He was a married man. She knew she wasn't supposed to be with him, but there was just something about the way he treated her. She felt cared for. She felt attractive. She felt wanted. And afterwards, she would always feel guilty and swear that this would be the last time, but then it would happen again, and it would happen again. And this guilt kept coming back to her, and there she was, lying in the temple courtyard, covered in dust and covered in shame. She lived with the tension. She learned to live with the tension. It was, it was a tension between I want what I want 
and yet I know that it's wrong. And she kept going back and forth. And she thought to herself, I'm going to get this right. I'm going to get my act cleaned up before it's too late. But then that day came and her bedroom door burst open with a loud noise and it was too late. And now there's nothing she can do. And she is stuck. And all of these men around her are priests. And not only are they holy men in a holy place, but they have a holy book that gives them the right to execute her on the spot. And so they hold in their hands large stones that they intend to use to put her to death. And among these holy men, among these priests and rabbis, there is a rabbi who stands out among all of them. And when she looks up, she recognizes him. She's heard about this guy. He's supposed to be the holiest of the holy men. He's supposed to be able to do miracles. She's heard that he's lived a sinless life, that he's absolutely unblemished in any way. And there he is, standing right in front of her in the holy place. If he is light, then she, by contrast, is darkness, and she knows it. And she wonders what such a holy man would do and say. She's aware of the way that people are leering at her and gawking and staring. She feels like everyone's looking at her body, and yet he's looking her straight in the eyes. And it's as though he can see through to her soul. And she sees in his eyes something different than she sees in the eyes of all of these others. But she can't quite put her finger on it. Is she in danger? Is this guy going to make it worse? She has no excuses. She has no power. There is nowhere to run. There is nowhere to hide. There's nothing she can do. She has no argument in her own favor and no one who will stand as her advocate. And so she collapses her face back down into the dust. And she lies there hoping it will go quickly. That she'll be put out of her misery and justice will be served because of the guilt and the shame is too heavy for her. There's nothing she can do. She's utterly lost. You know what? Sin is a really terrible thing. And and we don't like to talk about it, and we don't like to think about it. Even the word sin has been kind of stricken from the English language to a great degree. We, it's, it's too judgmental a word. It's too offensive a word. For you to talk about sin is to imply that somehow you know what is right and wrong, but, you know, our culture has decided that what's right for me is right for me, and what's right for you is right for you. And so for anybody to talk about someone's sin, it's just offensive, and so we don't do it. Even in church, we don't do it. We, we've replaced the word sin with other nicer words like, you know, problems and difficulties and challenges. And yet, every time I open this book, I notice that God is not so politically correct. When he talks about sin, he talks about it like it's this big, terrible thing. Like it's costly. Like it's dark. 
Like it's killing us. Sin is a real thing, whether we want to talk about it or not. But you know what? So is righteousness. God's standards are really high. And I just want to warn you in advance. This is why I wanted you to pray and ask God to prepare your heart. I don't have anything funny to say today. I don't have any cute little stories to weave for you. As we're going through the book of Ephesians, we're coming to this place in Ephesians 5 where God's just going to pull us up by the lapels and make us look him in the eye. And he's going to say, I want to talk to you about this issue of sin. And we're going to have to listen because his standards are really high. Do you know the name Derek Druin? Anybody, anybody know that name, Derek Druin? You've heard it recently. He, he won the gold medal for the high jump, representing Canada. He jumped 7 feet 10 inches from the ground. His body, his whole body, 7 feet 10 inches in the air, cleared the pole. Now, I didn't have an appreciation for that. I just know it's really high. So yesterday, I got out a tape measure, and I came in here, and I measured it up against this wall. Seven feet, ten inches is where his name is written. That's pretty high, right? Anybody think they could do it? I'm taking volunteers. Anybody want to take a shot? I'll, I'm serious. We'll put a pillow down here, and we'll catch you. It'll be great. Anybody? Nobody, huh? The reason you don't want to do it is because you can't do it. I can't do it. I'm, I'm pretty sure he's the only person on the planet who could do it. And if we made it 7 feet 11 inches, even he couldn't do it. Here's my point. We could lower the bar. We could put the bar at, I don't know, 2 feet 4 inches. And we'd have all kinds of volunteers. I could do it. I could do it. I mean, Jim still couldn't do it, but a lot of us could do it. <laughs> right? We could lower the bar. And that's exactly what we're tempted to do when it comes to God's standards for righteousness. We're tempted to lower the bar. We look at this standard where, where the God of the universe says, be ye holy as I am holy. And we go, um, no. I can't do that. He obviously must not mean that. He must mean try harder. That's probably what he means, right? And we just bring the bar down a few notches till we get the bar of God's righteous standard low enough that we feel like we'd be comfortable with it. And today, I'm going to resist that temptation, and we're just going to let the Word of God speak to us about where God has placed the bar. And then we're going to ask, what do we do about that? See, you look at that height and you say, I can never jump that high. But let me ask you, in all seriousness, what if someone held a gun to your head and said, either get over the bar without touching it, or I'm going to blow your head off. Could you do it? No. You just have to say goodbye, right? But what if, what if your eternity depended upon it? What if the deal was God said to you, either jump over the bar, or you're going to go to hell and spend eternity there? Could you do it then? No. You'd try, and you'd fail just like every other person has failed to meet God's standard of righteousness, except for Jesus himself. And that's why he speaks to us the way he does in Ephesians chapter 5. So if you've got a Bible, I encourage you to open it to the book of Ephesians. 
New Testament, right after Galatians and before Philippians, you'll find Ephesians. We've been in it now for several months, and we're just going through verse by verse and taking a look at what God has to say to us in Ephesians. And we find ourselves in Ephesians chapter 5, and I want to get a sense of where God has set the bar, okay? Chapter 5, verse 1, therefore, be imitators of God as beloved children. If you're wondering how high the bar is, God's the bar. Therefore, be like God, he says. I want you to, if you see God do it, I want you to do it. If it's true of God, I want it to be true of you. This is the standard. Be an imitator of God. You should be like God. That's a pretty high bar. Verse 2, and walk in love just as Christ also has loved you and gave himself up for us an offering and a sacrifice to God as a fragrant aroma. This is what we covered a couple of weeks ago. So not only are we told to be an imitator of God, that's where the bar is, but when it comes to love, we're supposed to be imitators of Christ. We're supposed to love the way Christ loved. That's totally sacrificial, totally unselfish, totally other-centered. We're supposed to love like Christ loves. Man, that's a high bar. And we've been talking about this. We talked about the bar of love and how we can love like Jesus. And this week, we're going to get into this issue of God's righteousness and how we can imitate God's standard of righteousness. So if you look at verse 3 as it continues on, it says, But immorality or any impurity or greed must not even be named among you as is proper among saints or holy ones. And there must be no filthiness and silly talk or coarse jesting, which are not fitting, but rather the giving of thanks. If we're going to be like God in this area of righteousness, he just begins to touch on some examples, clearly not an exhaustive list. He's not saying that this is all the things that you need to be, and if you just do these things, you'll have it. No, he's just hitting on a few obvious examples. And so he tells us that we're to be like God in the sense that there's absolutely no immorality or impurity even named among us. There's no greed. As holy ones, as followers of Jesus, as his church, no sexual immorality, no impurity, no greed, none of this stuff. And he says, that's the bar. Now, we can talk about how we don't like where the bar is, we can be upset about the bar, we can do all of that, but it's pretty clear where the bar is, right? He's not beating around the bush here. You see, when it comes to the gospel, people tend to make one of two crucial errors. Either on the one hand, we tend to compromise God's standard. We just lower the bar. We just go, well, I know the Bible says all of this kind of stuff, but really God knows that we're not perfect. And you know what? Doesn't the Bible say God is love? And if you love, you're not going to judge anybody. It's not like God wants to punish anybody. It's not like God doesn't understand where we're coming from and get where we're going. You know, God, God is a kind of a kindly old grandfather. He, you know, he's not like a dad so much as he's like a grandfather, you know? Not so much a disciplinarian. He's the one who always has some candy and coins in his pocket for you, right? That's how we like to think of God. And we don't really like to go to these passages that talk about these standards and go, my gosh, nobody meets these standards. And so we just sweep them away. 
Our God is all about forgiveness, all about grace, all about kindness, all about compassion, and that's the whole story. Now, are all those things true about God? Yes. But is that the whole story? No. So we, we tend to compromise God's standard on the one hand. On the other hand, we tend to overestimate our own righteousness. We tend to think of ourselves as better than we are. And the reason is we don't compare ourselves to God who is perfect. Who do we compare ourselves to? Each other. Look around you. There's someone in this room worse than you, I guarantee it. Right? Just keep, keep looking. You'll find somebody. Um, and we love to compare ourselves to others. And we sort of have this idea that, you know, when I come to stand before God in the judgment seat, you know, I'm going to tell him, listen, uh, if you look at the list, you'll see that I did a lot more good things than bad things, and I'm going to trust that God's going to be nice and compassionate, and I'm pretty good. I may not be able to make the bar, but I get a lot closer than most of the people in this room, and that's okay with me. I can do that. So we either compromise the truth about God's standards, or we compromise the truth about who we are and how, fall, how short we follow those standards. And, and as we read even a list like this where it talks about impurity and sexual immorality and greed and all these things that are mentioned here, we need to be careful because we find lists like this in various passages of Scripture. None of them are exactly mirroring one another, but they're, they're all lists that sort of give you an idea that there are certain um, characteristics in the lives of people that aren't followers of God. And basically what he's saying here is followers of God look a certain way and people who are not followers of God look a different way. And you should be able to tell the difference. And we need to be careful not to just sort of have this list of sins in our own mind. You know, the, the list I'm talking about, the sins that other people commit. And, and sort of ignore the ones that we're struggling with. And then look down at other people and judge them. You know, guys, if you've been around here any length of time and heard me talk, I, I probably mention this at least once a month. But I'm going to keep mentioning it until God's people get it right. We have to stop. If you're a Christian... If you're a follower of Jesus, if you've been washed in the blood and forgiven of your sin, you should be the least judgmental person on earth. The fact that Christians have a reputation for judgmentalism blows my mind. How is it that we who have been forgiven so much could be so hard on people who are still struggling in the same junk that we were struggling in before Jesus came and pulled us out of it? We have to be honest with ourselves. We are are not followers of Jesus because we are so worthy to follow Jesus. We're followers of Jesus because he is so gracious to us. It's nothing that we've earned. And so we can't be looking down at people. We go, you know what? People that are committing these sins, these are the ones. It says right here, not inheriting the kingdom of heaven. But if you look at the whole context, you go all the way back to the beginning of chapter 4, it talks about all kinds of sins, falsehood, sensuality, impurity, greed, deceit, stealing, foul speech, bitterness, anger, wrath, clamor, slander, all of that's just from chapter 4. So what's he trying to do? He's trying to paint a picture for us. And he's saying, guys, I know that this is not popular in the 21st century in the west coast of America, but I got to tell you something. There is a difference between people who walk in darkness and people who walk in the light. And as we as Christians have, have so um, tried to fit in with our culture, we've, we've come to fit in so much that there's no way to tell the difference. 
And God's word says, I got a problem with that. There's those who are in the light and there are those who are in darkness. God's standard is pretty high. Again, verse 3, immorality. That's that, the, the Greek word there, porneia, from which we get pornography. It means any sexual sin, any sexual sin, okay? Immorality, impurity, which is a broader term about um, sexual sin, greed. Um, we must not even have these things named among us. No filthiness, no silly talk, no coarse jesting, which are not fitting, but rather giving of thanks. Guys, if you don't find yourself in that list somewhere, you're not paying attention, right? We all still struggle with some of these things. And, and so I love how clear Paul makes this. He lists things like inappropriate humor right next to sexual immorality. He lists things like greed right next to things like stealing. You see the point? He's trying to let us know we're all in the same boat here. Every one of us is guilty before a holy God. It's not about who's the biggest sinner. It's about the fact that apart from the cleansing work of the blood of Jesus Christ, we are all guilty before a holy God. I love what Jesus did with that woman who was caught in adultery, surrounded by all of these men who are holier than she is. But he wouldn't let him stand for it. He wouldn't stand for it. We'll get to that. But as I said, our guilt is a big deal. Let's not try to convince ourselves otherwise. Look at verse 5. For this you know with certainty. In other words, there's no argument about this. Everyone understands this. For this you know with certainty that no immoral or impure person or covetous man who is an idolater has an inheritance in the kingdom of Christ and God. That's pretty straightforward, isn't it? Anybody misunderstand that? That's pretty clear. Verse 6, let no one deceive you with empty words, for because of these things, the wrath of God comes upon the sons of disobedience. Man, sin, wrath, these are things we don't talk about. But the Bible describes the lost state of human beings. It says, Romans 3.23 all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. Romans 6.23a, the wages of sin is what? Death. So this is not trivial to God. This is not no big deal to God. All of us are sinners, therefore all of us worthy of death. Romans chapter 1.18 goes on to say that the wrath of God is poured out upon man because of these kinds of sins that are listed here, and he lists them in Romans as well. The wrath of God poured out. This is serious stuff. And, and if you go to 1 Corinthians, let's go ahead and look that one up. Just turn back a couple of books to the left. Go to 1 Corinthians chapter 6. And, and we could look up several different passages that are similar to this. But this one's very, very straightforward, so it's helpful in that sense. 1 Corinthians chapter 6, beginning in verse 9. It sounds very similar to what we're reading in Ephesians 5. Verse 9, 1 Corinthians 6, Or do you not know that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God? Do not be deceived. He said it to the Corinthians, don't be deceived. 
He said it to the Ephesians, don't be deceived. He said it in several of his other letters, hey guys, don't be deceived. In other words, I know that you live in a world in which there are alternate views. I know that you live in a society where you will have people who will try to tell you that what I'm about to say is not true. If he was writing to our culture directly today, he would say something like this, I know that every commercial you see is preaching a different gospel. I know that every television show that you watch, every movie you go to, every song that you listen to, every billboard that you see, every person you meet on the street, I mean, there are people, professors in classrooms, everywhere you go, there is somebody who is trying to tell you, listen, there's no absolute right and absolute wrong. There's no black and no white. There's no light and no darkness. It's all really shades of gray, and it's really just a matter of my my view versus your view, and let's all just get along, and let's admit that nobody really knows what's right, and nobody really knows what's wrong. That's what we're getting in our culture today ad infinitum, right? And so what does he say to us? Hey, guys, don't be deceived. This is going to come to you, but, but do not be deceived, he says, continuing in verse 9, neither fornicators nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor effeminate, nor homosexuals, nor thieves, nor the covetous, nor drunkards, nor revilers, nor swindlers will inherit the kingdom of God. Don't be deceived, he says. And then he lists these sort of life-dominating sins. He doesn't just say someone who tells a lie. He says liars. You see the difference? We're not just talking about if you have ever committed this sin, it keeps you out of the kingdom of heaven. What it's talking about is if your life is characterized by your love for sin instead of your love for God, then that is a delineating line between those who are followers of Jesus and those who are not. And, and you might see some of your pet sins in here and go, yeah, see, I knew those people weren't going to go to heaven. And you've missed the point. The point that he's trying to make is this. Adulterers, homosexuals, liars, swindlers, drunkards, you name it. If your life is characterized by your sin rather than your life being characterized as a follower of Jesus, then you have serious questions to ask yourself about whether or not you're really a part of the family of God. Because he says, if this is who you are, if you're not transformed, if you're not in the process of becoming more like Christ, if you don't if, you, if you're not convicted of your sin, but you embrace it and you love it and you want more of it, and you've decided that that's going to be the, the title, the, the label that you wear, then you're not a follower of Jesus. And I don't care whether you prayed a prayer in VBS when you were seven, and I don't care whether you belong to the best church in town, and I don't care whether you were baptized and you teach Sunday school. I'm just telling you, Paul says, that if your life is characterized by godlessness instead of being characterized by love for Jesus, then you're not a follower of Jesus. And Christianity is defined as following Jesus. And we don't talk about it. Nobody wants to hear it. Frankly, I want to thank you all for nobody stood up and walked out yet. <laughs> this is hard. This is not... You don't find a book on how to build a bigger church and it says preach sermons like this. But guys, what are we going to do when the Word of God is so direct that we can't do anything to get around it? See, sometimes in an effort to be so kind and gracious and gentle with people who are hurting, 
we soft pedal the gospel and we don't tell the whole story. See, all those verses about God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son and, and how he sets his love on us and he adopts us as his children and all that kind of stuff about his goodness, his kindness, his, his forgiveness, his mercy, his grace. We sang today that great old hymn or some version of it, Amazing Grace, right? And I know the, the guitar part is cool and I like the little upbeat thing, but man, you know what gets me? He saved a wretch like me, right? His grace is amazing, you guys. But that amazing grace means nothing to someone who doesn't understand that they need it. And we have made a big mistake as God's people when we have been so careful not to hurt someone's feelings that we tell them how to get saved when we haven't helped them understand that they're lost. And we are going around and we're waving our banners and we're saying God loves you and has a wonderful plan for your life. And collectively, our society is saying, who cares? We've heard it. We got it. Yes, thank you. We read the pamphlets. We've heard it. I don't care. Why don't they care? Maybe they don't care because we're throwing life preservers to people who don't know they're drowning. Maybe if we would not just preach half the gospel that says God wants to be gracious to you, if we preach the whole gospel that says you're desperately lost and guilty before a holy God who will pour out his wrath upon you unless you're under the blood of Jesus Christ, maybe if we preached it that way, they'd be interested in hearing. See, the glorious gospel is not just that God is nice and kind and that he loves us and he's willing to forgive our sins. The glorious gospel is that without his grace, we are utterly lost and helpless, and he loves us anyway, and he's made a way. Go to chapter 5 of Ephesians again, and let's look at verse 7. Therefore, do not be partakers with them. For you were formerly darkness, but now you are light in the Lord. Walk as children of the light, for the fruit of the light consists in all goodness and righteousness and truth. Trying to learn what is pleasing to the Lord. Do not participate in the unfruitful deeds of darkness, but instead even expose them. For it is disgraceful even to speak of the things which are done by them in secret. But all things become visible. When they are exposed by the light, for everything that becomes visible is light. For this reason it says, awake sleeper and arise from the dead, and Christ will shine on you. Look again at verse 8. For you were formerly darkness. It's really important. That word darkness, really important not to miss that. That's a strong word. He doesn't say you were a little bit messed up. He says you were darkness. He doesn't even say you were in the darkness. He says you were darkness. But there's also two other very important words in that sentence. Were formerly. He's writing to Christians and he says, listen, don't forget where you came from. This is why we can't be judgmental of those people who are still lost. Don't forget where you came from. Maybe you're getting your act together. Maybe you've cut, up, you've cut out some of these habits that were displeasing to God. Maybe you're making your life a little bit more about worship. Maybe you're becoming more mature. Maybe you're starting to be a little less selfish. But don't forget where you came from. You were formerly darkness before Jesus got a hold of you. 
And you didn't get a hold of him, by the way. He got a hold of you. You were formerly darkness, it says. You guys, highlight that word were formerly because it implies something, which we get with the rest of the verse. But now you are light in the Lord. You were formerly darkness, but now you are light. What's the difference between the one who's darkness and the one who's the light? Jesus. Jesus. The presence of Jesus as Lord of your life is the difference between darkness and light. And so he says, now you who were formerly darkness, now you are light. Then what does he say? Walk as children of light. Don't act like you used to act back in the day before when you were darkness. See, the point is that if we are now light, we should walk in the light and be imitators of God. This is about the power of God's grace to transform. He doesn't just fix us. He doesn't just improve us. He gives us new life. When you come to Jesus, you're absolutely bankrupt and you have nothing to offer, and he gives you life. That's why the Bible says you must be born again, not just reformed. Born again. You need a life that you don't have apart from Christ. Remember 1 Corinthians 6 where we were just reading verses 9 and 10, that list of all those awful people who aren't going to go into the kingdom of heaven? It's just depressing. Go back there again. 1 Corinthians 6, 9 and 10 gives us these thieves, covetous, drunkards, swindlers, idolaters, uh, homosexuals, all this stuff, all these life-dominating labels that dominate people's life. And he says, in no uncertain terms, they're not inheriting the kingdom of God. Let no one deceive you. I don't care what the banners say. I don't care what they're saying on the news. I don't care what the psychologists are saying. Let no one deceive you. If you live in the, in the world of darkness, you do not live in the world of light. And if it were to stop there, it would be so depressing. It would be so discouraging if we just stopped reading at verse 10. And then we would probably feel really content to just wag our fingers at these terrible people who are living in these ways. But look what it says in verse 11. Such were some of you. There's that same word. You used to be and you're not anymore. Do you understand that? That's transformation. Guys, that is not, you know, I am, I am this label. This is who I am, and I might be in recovery, I might be getting better, but I am this person. That's what our society says. God's word says, such were some of you. That means you could be a former homosexual. It means you could be a former liar, a former drunkard. It means that you could be a former swindler, and right on down the list, it means that when Jesus comes and gets a hold of you, he makes you into a new creation. Guys, we have to stop swallowing the baloney that our society is feeding us that says you are stuck being what you have always been. I'm telling you, with Jesus, you're made new. 2 Corinthians 5.17, if any man is in Christ, he is a new creation. Old things passed away, all things have become new. You're not stuck. He transforms lives. He takes that which is dark and he makes it light. He takes that which is dead and he makes it alive. He doesn't just reform people. He transforms people. 
And it, it says right there in verse 11 of 1 Corinthians 6, it says, we've been washed, we've been sanctified, we've been justified, we have been made new. He delivers us from the kingdom of darkness and places us in the kingdom of light. He makes new creation. Now listen, just think about this. Do you think you could tell pretty quickly the difference between a dead body and a living person? You think it would take much? You'd probably be able to tell from the smell right off your bat, right? Do you think you could tell the difference between a person that is covered in filth and a person that is freshly bathed? Do you think you could tell the difference between utter darkness and brilliant light? These are not difficult contrasts to tell, right? Then why is it sometimes so hard to tell the difference between one who claims to be a follower of Jesus and one who doesn't? You should be able to tell. Now, don't get me wrong. I'm not talking about perfection. We're all in the journey together. You got your issues, I got my issues, we're all struggling along and growing at a pace, right? I'm not talking about perfection, I'm talking about direction. I'm talking about whether or not you are on a path with God or whether you're on a path in the world system. You can tell the difference between light and darkness. That's why Paul tells us to walk in the light. How else is our salvation supposed to be made evident. How else is the world going to know that this gospel that we preach is actually true unless they see it lived out in our lives? What a disservice we do to people when in the name of politeness we soft-pedal the gospel. And we're afraid to say, listen, you actually do have a problem with God. And it needs to be made right and it can only happen through Jesus. We pretend that God is this nice old grandfather who doesn't really care what's going on in your life. When we tell people that their sin is not really sin and that God is not really concerned about unrighteousness, we have a whole culture out there who has heard our claims and they are unimpressed. Why? Darkness? Light? It's all the difference in the world. And I'm afraid that in our effort to fit in with the world so that they will listen to us, we have maybe taken away our witness so they're not interested in listening to us. The gospel is not all about condemnation, but neither is it all about grace. The whole gospel is simply this, that every one of us is desperately lost in our sin and unable to save ourselves. That God loves us anyway and has sent his son to die, to take on the wrath that is due to us, and that either he takes the wrath for us or we take the wrath. That sin is actually worthy of condemnation, and that comes with the wrath of God. But the grace of God allows his wrath to be poured out on Jesus and us to be set free by faith through grace because of God's goodness. And he has a plan for our lives that involves light and not darkness. That's the whole gospel. We need to tell the whole story. And by the way, you remember the story about the lady who was caught in adultery? We left her. She was naked in the dust, face down. Just waiting 
for the first rock to strike and hoping it would put her out quickly. Hopeless, helpless. And then she heard the voice of Jesus. Let him who is without sin among you cast the first stone. And then quiet. The shuffling of feet. And then the sound of rocks dropping to the ground. As one by one, these holy men dropped their weapons and walked away under guilt. Because what was Jesus saying to them? You see this woman, she's obviously guilty. I see you, you're obviously guilty too. And then when all of these men have left and all the rocks are lying harmlessly on the ground, he says to the woman, does no one condemn you? And she peeks up from under her matted hair and she says, no one, Lord. And he speaks these beautiful words, neither do I condemn you. The only one there who had the right to throw a stone, chose instead grace. And he gives her his grace. And that grace is transformational. He knew it. She knew it. And his words indicate it. Because his next words to her were these. Now go and sin no more. He didn't lower the bar for her. He didn't say, you know what, it's not that bad. No, it's terrible. And she, she's a, a, a visual representation of the darkness and the bleakness of her own situation. Covered in dirt. Naked and exposed in all of her shame. And he says, neither do I condemn you. That's grace. Now go and sin no more. That's the standard. The difference being that once she has the grace, it's possible to go and live by the standard. And he makes her a new creation. My friends, the weight of guilt is real. And it's too much for us to bear. But the power of his grace is also real. Amen? Amen. And it transforms us and gives us new life. Jesus doesn't just save lives. He transforms us. And if you're here today and you're not yet a follower of Jesus and you're like, man, that was heavy. Is it always this heavy? Not always. But it's truth. And if you're thinking, wow, this Jesus, he hit the nail on the head because I don't maybe, I'm not guilty of this sin or that sin, but I'm guilty of some stuff. And if he knows my heart, wow, what am I going to do? Let me tell you, it's not about what you're going to do. It's about what he's already done. It's about his grace. It's about his love for you that says, I will go to the cross and take the wrath of God. Your punishment comes to me, Jesus says. And I will give you new life. I will take you from the kingdom of darkness and I will make you light. And he calls us, his church, the light of the world. And he says it's a free gift. And it's yours for the taking. Are you willing to trust him? 
Are you willing to follow Jesus? Are you willing to receive what is real life and walk away from the darkness that has become so comfortable? If you are a follower of Jesus today, I have a message for you as well. As I said, the world has heard our message and they're watching our lives. And if there was someone who didn't know Jesus and you were the only Christian they knew, what would they surmise about the life-changing power of Jesus by watching the way you live? What would they surmise about who Jesus is and what he can do for them by the, by the peace and the joy that you exhibit by, by your unselfishness, by your love, by your kindness, by your grace, by the change that is taking place in you, not perfection, but transformation? What would they see? What would that tell them about the validity of the gospel? See, isn't it time that we all began to walk in the light so the whole world would not only hear the gospel, but know that Jesus is Lord because of the way the gospel is lived out in us? Jesus said, let your light shine before men in such a way that they may see your good works and glorify your Father who's in heaven. You, church, you, Christian, are the light of the world. Let us walk in that light. Let's stand together.